there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. Whenever I do questions and answers, I do want to tell you in advance that I will try my best to give you a biblical answer. If I can't give you a biblical answer, I may give you a personal opinion, which you're certainly perfectly free to discard. Please don't feel that I've given you the back of my hand. If I give you too brief an answer, it may be sometimes I mis misunderstand your question or whatever, but I will try to do the best I can. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says. And underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend Elizabeth Elliot trying to answer questions this afternoon. And the first question was, would you please let us hear at least once your comforting words? <laughs> so I just did that. <laughs> I stopped having family devotions, praying that my husband would take leadership in that area. It has been about nine months. Should I resume, I see my family drifting. This is a common question that comes from women who do earnestly want to have family devotions. It's my suggestion that you continue to have family devotions as tactfully as possible, preferably when a, a time when your husband is not around, so that you're not trying to lay a guilt trip on him or corral him into doing something that he doesn't want to do, unless he strenuously objects to your having family devotions at all. I think it is your responsibility to take the leadership in that area. You're just the mother and you're training your little children. It's different from taking a position of responsibility or authority in the church, which we are strictly forbidden to do. Serenity is important. Do you find that to-do lists affect your serenity? They used to. I trust I've gotten over that permanently because I do believe with all my heart that I have only one thing to do, and that is the will of God. And God is going to help me to do that. When I get used to get back from a long trip, this one, for example, will have covered almost a week by the time we get home, and there will be a huge pile of work ready for me and phone messages and mail and everything else. And I used to feel very uptight and frustrated and helpless when I had to look at all this because I was sure that I could never get through it. I no longer do that. I just go back, I take a look at the pile, I do my best to organize it in some kind of a reasonable order, and I just get down on my knees and say, now, Lord, you know everything that's in here. You know what needs to be done when. Please help me to do this in a calm and orderly way. And I do believe that he helps me to do that. That's the only reason that I'm still alive, I guess, because if I got frustrated and uptight about every time that happens, I wouldn't be around anymore. He has promised to help us, and my times are in his hand, and he never gives us more to do than he will give us time to do it in. There, are, there may be things on your schedule that are not on God's, you need to be constantly submitting your to-do list to God, asking that he will 
show you which ones need to be stricken from the list and which ones you may have forgotten that he wants to add. I would appreciate your perspective on vows that we make to God, specifically, number one, how they are regarded by God. They are, according to Scripture, regarded as unbreakable by God. There is an exception in the Old Testament. If a woman makes a vow, which her husband does not know about, but later on wants to cancel, then the, woman, the, the vow is canceled in God's sight, even though the woman has made it. There's nothing like that in the New Testament, so I don't know. I can't say anything more about that. Secondly, on this question, uh, what, what view does God take of, of keeping them? Of course, the same answer. If we make a vow, then we have to keep it. The consequences of failing to keep them. Well, that's dishonesty, isn't it? And we have to face the consequences of our dishonesty. There's a verse in the Psalms that says that the man who makes a vow must keep it even if it is to his own hurt. And that's a principle that you certainly should be very careful about in your own life. And when you're careful in your own life, then you have a responsibility to teach it to your children. And as I was writing my book on the shaping of a Christian family, which is the story of the home in which I grew up, I came to this whole question of of parents' honesty and fulfillment of promises and that sort of thing. And for the life of me, I could not remember one single time ever in, in our growing up years that either parent broke any promise. And I called my brother who lives nearby, and we've had some number, some discussions about it. None of us has ever been able to think of any time in which our parents broke a promise to us. We knew that what our parents said they meant, no matter what it might cost. Now, God might bring circumstances which would make it impossible to keep a promise. But in so far as lies with us, it is a very serious thing to make a vow. And that's one of the reasons we have so many divorces, because vows are taken very lightly. The word commitment means next to nothing. And young people talk about writing their own vows, and I've seen some samples of those, and it just makes me want to sit down and cry, because they're usually nothing to do with vows. They're descriptions of how this pair happened to feel about each other at the moment. And we married people who are sitting in the audience can tell them that in about another 24 hours, (laughs) you'd want to change those. Here's the first time I've ever been asked this question, and it just happens to be a very appropriate one at the moment. Do you know of a Christian academic high school? Yes, I know of a Christian academic boarding school, which is a high school, because that's where my 17-year-old daughter will be going this coming uh, fall. It's called Grenville Christian College, and it's in Ontario. And my husband and I have been there twice. I've given the commencement address there. We are extremely impressed with the campus, with the students, with the faculty, with the headmaster, who is a friend of ours. So that's the name of it. It's Granville Christian College. It's in Brockton, Ontario. How would you define a meek and quiet spirit, and how is it developed? Well, the word meek is very often confused with the word weak. Don't ever confuse meek with weak. Jesus was as meek as a lamb. He was never weak. Moses was called the, the most, the meekest man on earth. And I don't think many of us would think of Moses as being a wimpy man. 
a meekness means acceptance of God's place in his economy, of the place that God has given to us in his economy. And Moses recognized his place. And in, on the occasion when he was challenged by a bunch of people who thought that they ought to have equality of authority with him, Moses had the good sense not to get into the ring and fight with them. He simply said, meet me here tomorrow morning. We'll ask the Lord what he thinks about this. And the Lord's answer was rather dramatic. The ground opened up and swallowed Moses' opponents. As for how it is developed, acceptance of God's estimate and of his assignment. Jesus said, come to me, you who are tired and overburdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. A newer translation says, I am humble and gentle in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And that's where you're going to learn it. You have to take the yoke of Christ, which is the will of the Father. There's the metaphor, I think, is of a double ox yoke. Jesus is under one side. He put, bends his neck under the will of the Father, and he expects me to bend my neck under the will of the Father and move in harmony with him as the two oxen have to do. And as for developing a quiet spirit, read Psalm 46. Be still and know that I am God. May I see the hands of you women who were born with a meek and quiet spirit. You see, it's not natural to any of us, but it is available by the grace of God. Any pearls of wisdom you could share from your own experience, if applicable, of taming the tongue? Well, it's certainly applicable, and I don't have any tricks or any esoteric suggestions. The most obvious thing is to keep your mouth shut. Never pass up an opportunity to keep your mouth shut. As for anything beyond that, at least if you slow down and shut your mouth first and then think about it and pray about it a little bit, God will help you to tame what needs to be tamed. I had several questions on that same matter. There are those who maintain that the new birth takes place in infant baptism. Is this scriptural or tradition? I would say it's both. When the jailer in Acts, was scared to death. Uh, he was asked, he said, what, what must I do to be saved? And the answer was, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. And so he and his whole family were baptized. So that's where, that's one of the passages from which those churches that use infant baptism take their cues. And of course, there is strong tradition in some churches for infant baptism. There's what's called covenant baptism. A child of the covenant in certain churches is baptized as an infant. Would you give the meaning of the word grace? I believe it is God pouring himself out in great generosity for you and me. Grace is unmerited favor. And God knows we don't deserve it. And God pours out Himself. It is God giving himself to us. What words of wisdom do you have about choosing a mate? 
I don't know whether this is from a man or a woman, of course. If it's from a woman, my first word would be caution. We are not to go looking for a mate. This is a clear scriptural principle to me that men are created to be the initiators. Adam was created to be the, the man, the husband, who was to provide for, to protect, to care for, to cherish, and to husband his wife. Male anatomy is a very clear um, illustration or proof of the fact that the male is meant to be the initiator. Female anatomy is obviously for reception. We are receptors, receivers, bearers, carriers, nurturers. And God is himself the initiator. He woos the bride. And we, all of us, men and women alike, constitute the bride of Christ. So to me, these are extremely important spiritual principles and mysteries which we cannot tamper with. I think one of the problems, one of the great wickednesses that has been the result of the feminist movement is the trivialization of the mystery of masculinity and femininity. And I could talk for the rest of the afternoon on the subject, but I would point you to my two books on the subject. I have a book on femininity, which is called the, uh, Let Me Be a Woman, and a book on masculinity called The Mark of a Man. I've tried to spell these things out in much more detail. On the same card, how can you know that a specific person is the one that is God's will for you? That, of course, raises the very broad question of how do we know God's will about anything? I have three basic principles that I would suggest to start with if you are in a quandary about anything. Number one, tell God you'll do anything he says, and you are thereby taking the same position that Mary took. She did not know what was going to be entailed by her becoming the mother of the Son of God, but she was at God's orders. And Paul says in Romans 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. So that is the, the first step. There's no use hammering on God's door for guidance about something if you have not already made up your mind that you're going to do what he says. Why should God guide you if you haven't decided irrevocably to do it? So that's point one. Point two is very simple and very obvious. How in the world will, would I expect to know the will of God unless I am in constant touch with him, in communion with him. And that involves two very simple practical things like Bible reading and prayer. I read my Bible in order to receive God's teaching and instruction and correction. And I pray in order to talk to God and to listen to what God has to say to me. And it is usually both through and in accord with scriptures that I find the will of God. He will never guide us in any way which is contrary we hear some rather breathtaking and foolish things claimed by people who say, God told me to do this. Well, God tells people to do very bizarre things, if that's the case. Um, anything which is not in harmony with Scripture is highly suspect. Of course, God's not going to tell you by chapter and verse whether you're supposed to buy that house or quit this job or marry that woman. But he will guide you in ways that will be understandable to you. That's a great comfort to me because I did a lot of worrying when I was young that I was going to miss the will of God. I was just positive 
that I would miss the boat, miss the plane, miss the trolley car, miss the bus. You know, everybody else in the world knows where they're going except me. And it runs in the family. I have a brother who says, when I dial a prayer, they hang up on me. <laughs> and um, we're a bunch of worriers in our family. I can look back now and see what a terrible waste of time that was, and much worse, it's disobedience, because the Bible tells us not to worry, but God has certainly been faithful. And it should encourage all of us to remember that the shepherd is far more interested in getting the sheep where the sheep ought to be than the sheep are in getting there. We may think that that's the supreme desire of our lives. Well, God's not going to let us miss the way if that really is. Elizabeth, I understand that the Stam's daughter was spared. Did this experience affect her life? What is she doing now? We appreciate your being here. This is at least the seventh person that has asked me this question. Yes, she did survive. She was taken care of, first of all, by Chinese Christians. She was actually nursed by Chinese mothers for a few days or weeks. And then she was sent to her grandparents, Betty's, Betty Scott's parents, who were missionaries in China at the time. I believe I'm correct about this. And then they gave her to another one of their family, and she was raised by them. All I know about her now is that she lives in Philadelphia. She's in her 60s, and she belongs to a church. I know nothing else. But I'm told that Betty Scott's brother is to be here this afternoon. So maybe we can find out the right answer from him. He might know more about her. Kenneth Scott, I'm told, is in this area. We may get to see him. I know this is more a question of parenting style than anything else, but I'd love to know how you responded when your kids were whining. I seem to be able to handle all my toddler's excesses calmly, well, sort of calmly, except for his whining. Any suggestions? And that is probably the most difficult thing. My daughter said to me, I can make my children do their jobs, their chores and their schoolwork. But she said, I cannot make them stop whining. Or do the, I can't make them always do, do them cheerfully. Well, she instituted the whining chair, which was in the, in the hall. And when she gathered the children around her and explained, anybody that whines or is not cheerful about whatever I'm asking you to do, you will have to sit on that chair for X number of minutes, depending on the age of the child and the offense. And her daughter, Christiana, who was then about four or five, she piped up and she said, yes, Mama, and I think that if they whine when they're on the chair, then they ought to be spanked. <laughs> but there certainly are punishments that you can think of, all sorts of creative ideas. Um, one suggestion that I made to my daughter for the older children who are too old to be spanked and might welcome sitting on the chair for a couple of hours so they could <laughs> read a book or something. Um, how about getting child A to do child B's chores if they were having a squabble about something or whining over something? That would be very humiliating to have to do somebody else's chores plus his own. What would you consider a constructive age and format for a child's Bible study outside the home? That's certainly a new one. I believe that Bible studies should be primarily taught by the parents in the home, as it was in our, in our family. But I remember that we did have young people's groups, and I remember one church where I guess I was beyond that age at the time, but my younger brothers 
went to the younger young peoples. We had the young peoples, we had the old peoples group and the middle-aged peoples group and the young peoples group and the younger young peoples group, etc. I would think 12 would be a constructive age. As for the format, I wouldn't know what to say. I would strongly recommend Scripture Union materials if you're looking for good helps for Bible study and devotional life for all ages. There's everything from a family program to adults, men or women, all the way down to age three. They have different graded programs. Scripture Union is the name of the organization, and they do have very excellent materials. Any particular book you would recommend besides the Bible, giving someone in pain or in a terminal state? There are wonderful books on the subject, which are not always available. One that I'm quite sure is available is Amy Carmichael's Rose from Briar, a beautiful book for the ill. And, Mary, and Amy Carmichael herself was more or less ill. She was confined to her room for the last 20 years of her life. So she says in her introduction to this book that this is slightly different from most of books for the ill because it's written by the ill, for the ill. Rose from Briar is the title. And modesty should forbid me to mention this, but I have written two books which would be appropriate for someone in pain or in a terminal state. Um, a Path Through Suffering I would give to anyone who is in suffering, and the, the Path of Loneliness I would give to one who has just been bereaved. It starts right out with bereavement, and the Path Through Suffering starts out with the problem of cancer. I became acquainted with you through articles published in Crosspoint, a magazine we receive, aside from you, your books. Are your articles published elsewhere? Not on any regular basis. Every once in a while I'm asked to write an article, not very often anymore. I used to write a regular column for Christian Herald magazine, which has long since gone defunct. And uh, many of the articles that I did write are in several of my books. I have about five, I think it's five books, which are collections of articles, and Lars can tell you about them if you're interested, but uh, Crosspoint is a magazine that has an article by me in virtually every issue, I think. They just wrote and asked if they would be permitted to use anything that they wanted to use from my writings, and so I don't sit down and write articles for them. They're already written, and they choose them. But my newsletter, of course, is always written by me for that issue. So if you want to be on my newsletter list, just ask Lars. It comes out six times a year, and you never need to pay anything. How did you know the will of God in your life? When did you feel your calling? I've already given you the first, the basic principles, the first three principles. I think I left out the third one, didn't I? Yes, thank you. Uh, first of all, Tell God you do what he says. Second thing, read your Bible and pray. The third thing, which is very often overlooked, do the next thing. In other words, continue to do the duties that you already know God is requiring of you. If you're a mother, you know what your duties are. If you're a wife, you know what your duties are. If you're a father, you know what your domestic duties are. You know what your duties are in your job, whatever that is. If you go to a church... You all know what your duties are. What about the neighborhood? All of these things are common, ordinary duties, which we need to carry out faithfully. 
And it's as we do those things, which we may think of as very trivial and not very spiritual, then God can make known his special will in some decision which we're stewing about. And then there are many other uh, things to look for, and I have written a book on that subject called God's Guidance. It goes into God's methods, God's instruments, God's um, means, supernatural means, natural means. And then this person wants to know, when did you feel your calling? I had hoped all my life that God was going to give me the privilege of being a foreign missionary. And so I guess I always sort of felt like a missionary. I'm not supposed to read this out loud, so I have to read it. Okay. Okay. Modesty persuades me to say, these are words my husband's putting in my mouth, the path of loneliness. I don't have the path of loneliness. Modesty persuades Lars to say that he doesn't have the path of loneliness. <laughs> do you have a few path through suffering? You do have a few. He does have a few path through suffering. He does not have any copies left of the path of loneliness, but you have them at home, right? Already said that. Okay. So I felt called to the mission field, and I thought that I was going to be a doctor because that's what I wanted to be from the time I was a little kid. First I wanted to be a nurse, then I decided I'd be a doctor, then I, would decide, then I decided I would be a surgeon, a missionary surgeon, and I registered as a pre-med student at Wheaton. But it was at the end of my junior year that I saw that God had given me a gift in linguistics, and it was then that I heard about the need for Bible translations. And so I majored in Greek, and took linguistic training. I don't go by my feelings. I try not to go by my feelings. I, I didn't have any further feel of a call. It was between my junior and senior year that I got down on my knees one summer day and just said, Lord, is this my idea or is this yours? Is this just my own personal longing to be a foreign missionary or are you really calling me? And we have to believe that God is going to answer us in the way that we need. And he did. He gave me scriptures. He gave me um, all kinds of unexpected ways in which Ecuador was brought to my attention. And there were some other factors. But rest assured that the Lord, who is our shepherd, and has promised to lead us in paths of righteousness, that he will do just that. And he knows what it takes to guide you if you've made up your mind to do what he says and if you are doing what he says today what is the point of asking God about your career six months from now or six years from now if you're not being obedient in what God tells you to do today I have to t say this to students all the time because they're all hung up about who to marry and what college to go to and what to major in and how to find the will of God, and I say, I can tell you what the will of God is. You're a student, aren't you? Well, the will of God for you is to study and not plagiarize on your papers and not cheat on the exams. If you're being disobedient in those areas, you can't expect God to show you what he wants you to obey elsewhere. 
response to a question this morning, you mentioned Ephesians 5.22, wives submit. You and many other teachers use this passage a lot in your teachings, but I've never heard anyone discuss the previous verse. Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This seems to me to mean everyone, husbands to wives and parents to children included. What is your understanding of this commandment? Why is it so often overlooked by teachers and preachers? I don't think I ever overlook it in a talk on this subject. I might in a question when I'm trying to answer it very briefly. But to me, it's perfectly clear that it would be nonsense for Paul to say slaves, masters, submit yourself to your slaves and parents, submit yourselves to your children. Paul starts out by saying, submit to one another. That is a general statement. Then he immediately specifies the order in which this submission is to be obtained. Wives to husbands, children to parents, slaves to masters. That is the biblical order. And it is unfortunate if people overlook that altogether. My husband and I need some principles to discern how many children we should have. We hear so many conflicting sides and, of course, question our own abilities or capabilities. We already have two wonderful children. I don't think you find any conflicting sides in the scripture. Children are a heritage from the Lord. They are a gift from the Lord. But I do not think that the scripture teaches that to do anything about a given decision is to prove that you're not trusting God for that decision. And an example of that would be when Nehemiah was building the wall. He says, we prayed to our God and we set a watch. And there are a whole lot of passages in scripture where something had to be done. Hezekiah prayed for healing, but Hezekiah also made a fig poultice. Now, having said that, that is not to say, by all means, use birth control. I would never say that. What I do want to say to young people, and certainly not my prerogative to tell you what to do or what not to do, but since you ask, I would say I thank God for and applaud young couples who really honestly want to receive what God wants to give them. The attitude of two kids for us, period, case closed, is not a godly attitude. You are dictating to God, and you're not multiplying. Two children is not multiplication. And the first commandment in the, in the first chapter of Genesis was be fruitful and multiply. So all you're doing is keeping the same population if you're producing only two children. I don't think you can begin to understand how blessed a large family is until you are a member of one or have one. And I'm just thrilled to see the big families that I know, the Christian families. Lars and I visited a home in Hungary that had 14 children. It was one of the most beautiful homes we've ever been in. The dynamics between those children were just tearjerkers to see. The love among those children, including a 19-year-old, very handicapped sister who was blind and uh, speechless and crippled. All those children just loved that sister. So you're doing your children a very big favor 
the bigger the family is. And God will never give you a child for whom he will not provide. Of course, the economics make no sense in today's world. They're going to tell you it's going to cost you $200,000 per child. So that's a million dollars if you have five of them. Pay no attention to that. Ask the Lord what you should do. Now, let me say that I do, if, if you feel that it's legitimate for you to make some kind of decisions about spacing or the number of children, the only thing I would recommend would be natural family planning. The surgical, medicinal, uh, chemical means and whatever other means of birth control do not require the cooperation of the husband and wife. They do not require sacrifice and self-restraint. But natural family planning does. And to me that is a very significant difference. God has put into the reproductive system this natural family planning, which has only been discovered in this century and is being continually learned more about. So it's reasonable to think that God allowed people in this century, perhaps because there are more pressures and certain things, uh, to, to discover these. Maybe it's legitimate for you to consider that, but I'm not here to say that's what you're supposed to do. Do we reconcile being in God's will now and reaping what... How do we reconcile being in God's will now and reaping what we sowed in the past? For example, marrying an unsaved husband. You don't have to reconcile it. God will take care of that. If you are married now to an unsaved husband and you deliberately married an unsaved husband, perhaps when you were not saved, this is your assignment today. You are to be the wife of this man. You do not institute a divorce because you made a mistake 10 years ago. This is the situation in which God wants you to learn to know him. And in every situation, God is going to uh, guide you. I'm not sure if I read you this passage yesterday, if I read it in the church where I spoke on Sunday night, but this is very comforting. Whatever I am, wherever I am, I can never be thrown away. If I am in sickness, my sickness may serve him. In perplexity, my perplexity may serve him. If I am in sorrow, my sorrow may serve him. He knows what he is about. He does nothing in vain. He, he may throw me among strangers. He may make me feel desolate, etc. No matter what your seemingly insupportable system uh, problem might be, God is here now with you, and you can forget about the decisions you made that were wrong in the past. You may have to reap some sorrow because of them, yes, but you don't even think for two seconds about doing anything about getting out of the marriage. If you are now married to an unsaved husband, then ask God to help you to fulfill everything that it says in 1 Peter 3. That deals specifically with a woman who is married to a man who is either not a Christian or who is not behaving like a Christian. Is it contradictory to pray thy will be done while at the same time praying for something specifically as you did in praying that God would give you Jim Elliot as a husband? Certainly not, because we are commanded again and again to pray. But Jesus gave us the Lord's Prayer, and we pray specifically, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Uh, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. These are all petitions, aren't they? 
But the bottom line is, thy will be done. That is, that should be the bottom line of all of our prayers. Paul says in Philippians 4, make your requests known to God. That's a command. Why should I not make my requests known to God? I'm telling God something he already knows, but God wants to bring his child to his knee. God wants to give us things that he cannot give us until we've asked for them, so that we will then recognize that we did ask for him, he did give it to us, and now we can thank him. And I find that if I don't keep a notebook about some of the major prayers in my life, I completely forget about them and don't even think of thanking him. So I've been keeping a little prayer notebook, and it is wonderfully faith-strengthening to go back and see, this is what I ask on this date, this is the answer that God gave me. And over and over again, they are things which I know I would have forgotten to say thank you for. I would like to know what books you've read besides God's Word which have impacted your life. I was not saved until my mid-30s, therefore I'd like to catch up. Can you include the stage of your life you were in when you read the book? The first thing on the list would be the Amy Carmichael books, and I was introduced to them when I was 14 years old by the headmistress of the boarding school that I attended, and I was hooked, and I began borrowing her books, and then I began buying them later on. Um, C.S. Lewis came along when I was uh, just a year or two later, I think. I was still in high school when C.S. Lewis's, what's the name of the first book? Uh, screw tape. Screw tape came out, and I was completely swept away with that, and then began reading all the books of C.S. Lewis. And then when I was had graduated from college, I was tutoring a couple of homeschooled children from Africa for a year, and while I was sitting there waiting for them to do their assignments one day, I pulled a book out of their bookcase, and it was by George MacDonald. It was called Salted with Fire, and that was a real watershed in my life. I had the pleasure of sitting next to you at the morning session today. You sang so mightily and beautifully. Have you always been musical? <laughs> I think everybody that grows up in a, in a singing home is musical. I don't really think that uh, any that there's anybody that can't sing if they're if they're taught early enough now that doesn't mean that we're opera singers or anything like that but we did grow up in a home where we sang every single morning and when we get together we six we always spend a lot of time singing together i have four brothers and of course they sing the men's parts and i have one sister so we have one soprano one alto and two basses and two tenors what has been the role faith has played throughout your life course my goodness. How has your faith helped you negotiate the events of life? Well, it's not my faith, it's my faithful God who has been there throughout my life and he has not just negotiated me, but he said, when thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And that was the verse he gave me when I learned that Jim was missing. And through the rivers they shall not overflow thee when thou walkest through the fire. Oh, I thought Lars was giving me one minute left, and here's Dawn standing over here. Do I have one minute? Two or three. Please address your general opinions of world women today. Where are we going wrong? Dress? Yes. <laughs> Behavior? Yes. <laughs> My time must be up, right? <laughs> I do deplore the unisex movement toward 
unisex dress, which means, you know, sweatshirts, t-shirts, sweatpants, and all the rest of it. I'm not here to say it's wrong or that there isn't a place where it's appropriate, but I would urge, beg, plead on my knees to Christian women, be feminine, be humble and simple. Don't try to, w to wear the flashiest thing, whatever's going to draw attention, the shortest skirt, the see-through blouse and all the rest of it, or even the, the, the nice, the fanciest fashions. Aim at simplicity, humility, and just not drawing attention to yourself. You don't want to draw attention to yourself by being either in the vanguard of fashion or by being looking like a frump. And as for behavior, we've been talking about submission and gentle and quiet spirit and all of those things. Thank you so much for coming and thank you for giving me this time. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. Thank you.